0: Hello and welcome to The Last Wicket, a cricket podcast for when you want to take a break from outraging over the non-selection of your favorite player. I'm your host Benny, and this week I was joined by fellow co-hosts Mayank and Himanish to speak with someone who has a PhD on the biomechanics of the backlift technique in cricket. Dr. Habib Nurbai is an associate professor at the University of Johannesburg in South Africa and a health and sports scientist who specializes in healthcare technology and cricket science. We at The Last Ricket spoke with him about all of that, including his extended thoughts on the role of biomechanics in sport, particularly cricket. So stay tuned for our fascinating conversation. <music> So, Habib, thank you so much for coming on The Last Wicked. Uh, this is a pleasure, and uh, we have so much to talk about. Uh, you know, your PhD on the biomechanics of the backlift, the unique training bad that you helped develop in relation to that. Uh, you're a sports scientist, speaker, humanitarian, and you're an associate professor at the University of Johannesburg. Uh, But before we get to all of that, uh, tell me how, how did you manage to find time when you were doing your PhD studies to win Mr. South Africa in 2017? I'm just curious, as someone whose parents always have the highest expectations of me, you've set the bar really high. So how did you accomplish this?
1: I was hoping you didn't find that in the bio, but uh, if you you really wanted me to speak about it. um, Yeah, so I mean, it it comes to the humanitarian conscious that I I grew up with and uh, use that platform in the competition to do a lot more for charity. And I just entered the competition to use it as a platform. I had no anticipation of winning it. So to my surprise, I did win. But fortunately, we were able to use that title and platform to spearhead some good projects within the educational, health and, and sporting spheres.
0: That, that's a pretty interesting route to go that way. I don't think most people would consider that. Uh, okay, let's talk about the, your, you know, PhD. Um, how did you decide on doing it? You know, specifically on the biomechanics of the backlift.
1: Right, right. Yeah. So, th- thank you so much again for having me, guys. So, um, cricket has been my passion for a long time since I was a young boy, like many of us, and uh, played the game, coached the game. And uh, it all started with my mentor, uh, Prof. Tim Noakes, uh, in 2014. Um, and he knew my, my passion was about cricket. And he approached me. We had a meeting. And he said, he said look, uh, he has this project that he wants to chat about. But the, long, uh, the, the short story of it, of all, is um, the, he co-authored he a book with the, the late Bob Ulmer. And in their book, there's a passage within the book called The Great Debate. And that talks about the backlift. And they were wanting to unravel that question around the backlifting cricket. And it also stemmed from the work that was done by Tony Schillinglaw, where he wrote a book on Bradman Revisited. So it was largely inspired by the art and science of cricket, but it was also partly inspired by the legend himself, Don Bradman. Because how was a man such of this caliber? uh, How was he able to achieve an average of more than 99% and uh, have an unconventional backlift in the time where traditional practices were at its peak. So we really need to investigate what was so great about the caliber of this individual. And so that's where the, the question around the, the biomechanics of the back had started. And so the, the first initial uh, activity and task that I had to do was not just to look at Bradman itself, because we know now in the science, if you're only looking at one person, you're then going to be achieving something which is known as a one-point extrapolation. You can't really look at someone and then feel that it's it's textbook-based for everyone. So I had to do in my first paper, look at the history of the greatest cricketers from 1895 till 2014. And this was about six, seven years ago. And we had found that a lot of those guys who were successful ended up using a backlift that was not in alignment to what the coaching manual said at that time, which was to lift your bat straight up over the wicket. And, um, and especially with, with the closed face of the bat. And I'll talk about that a bit later. And we needed to ask, well, why were they so successful? But they weren't actually, they were unconsciously following their own practices by not actually it being aligned to the coaching manuals. And in particularly the MCC coaching book that was published after 1950. So that's what propagated this entire research question was around the backlifting cricket. And as we moved along, we, we, we began to find some other confounding factors that were influencing uh, why bat why batsmen were successful or why they were able to perform cricket at the highest level dependent on the type of backlift that they had. Now, mm-hmm. it, originally, we had three different types of backlifts. And we then said, you know what, we don't want to, We just want to keep it simple and so that the audience in the, the cricket fraternity can understand. So we deciphered between the straight backlift and the lateral backlift. And this rotary backlift that was that was positioned around how Bradman had played, or even the other guys had played, which we'll get to but later in the question, um, that was termed as the lateral backlift with an open face of the bat, because a straight backlift, biomechanically, or even in terms of human motion, is not just a natural movement just to pick the bat up straight, and you are considerably restricting uh, a batsman who would restrict themselves considerably if they are playing with a straight backlift, especially in a linear plane. And to, to face bowlers these days who are bowling more than 90 miles per hour and to get behind the ball, we've even found out that batsmen are able to time the ball a lot more efficiently if they had to administer a lateral backlift. So So that, that's that's where, the, that's where the entire project had started.
2: Um, so I think the uh, one piece I, I guess I'm curious about is what were the types of players that you looked at for the research? Did it include a mix of age group players, um, you know, uh, young girls, women? Um, just trying to understand the mix.
1: Yeah, so we predominantly looked at, at male players. Uh, we are in the, the process of looking at, fee, at the female cohorts. Uh, we, we, are, we do hypothesize that, that there may be a lot of lateral battle of specialists, uh, even in, uh, among the female cricketers as well, but we don't know yet for sure. Uh, but a lot of the players that we looked at were, were, were male cricketers, right from junior, right to the elite level. Um, so if I take you through the story of how the back of thesis or the research had developed was we looked at the first sample the first study that we looked at which was published in the Journal of Sports Sciences that looked at all the greatest cricketers from 1895 till 2014 in terms of test cricket. And then we looked at all the greatest ODI cricketers until 2014. And that's because um, I had started the project in 2014, 2015. So we couldn't really look at all the greatest players up, up till now. Uh, but that was the first study. And once we were able to understand what had happened at the elite level, we then needed to understand, well, okay, well, what's happening at the state level and the provincial level? So I flew up to the UK and we filmed a couple uh, a couple of county teams. I think it was Middlesex, Durham, and Sussex. And then in South Africa, I filmed all the provincial and franchise cricketers. And there we were able to find other kind of cofactors in terms of the stance. So we're now finding, and and this is beautiful that it's a video because I can demonstrate. So if someone does have a lateral back lift, uh, we find that at times batsmen tend to open this stance as well. Now, if a batter, just had an open stance at the crease, but had a straight back lift, intuitively it became a lateral back lift because the entire movement sequence at the crease had shifted. So unconsciously, that also had happened. So that was one aspect that we looked at was that the open stance or the closed stance of the crease. We even looked in terms of their shoulders. So was it a closed uh, shoulders or did they open their shoulders? Because once you start opening up, especially in the upper extremity, you tend to open that up as well. So your backlift can shift from straight to lateral, right? Um, we then also looked at wagon wheels and we found that those who had a lateral backlift were more able to score runs more around the field instead of straight backlifts who were playing more on the linear plane in the V. So they were very good. They were very good on the off, they were very good on, on, the, on the leg side, on the on drives, and occasionally with, with, the, with, with the cut to the pull. But those who had a lateral backlift were able to disperse runs more around the field. So, so those are the kind of things we had. So we were understanding so at that point we understood, okay, we kind of had we have some understanding in terms of what's happening at the elite level, what's happening at the professional and the county level, but we now need to understand what's happening at the younger levels or the semi-professional levels. So then we went out to investigate some cricketers at, um, at schoolboy level to really understand what was happening there, and we found that a vast majority of them are actually having a straight backlift and not a lateral backlift. And when we were able to decipher that, we then were able to populate a trend line that, if those who want to be successful, a lateral backlift is a contributing factor to a successful batsman who want to play at the elite level. So we're not saying it's if you don't have a lateral backlift, you're not going to be successful. No, that would be a bold statement. What we are saying is a lateral backlift is a significant contributing factor to for batters to enable them to be successful at the highest level. We then even went further down and we went to the junior age groups and we had a bunch of players who either played normal coach cricket who were coached. And then we went into the township areas in South Africa where players were not coached and uh, they just had raw talent to hit the ball. And intuitively without being coached, they lift the bat in that direction which brought us to the point that if traditional coaching is not being applied to young cricketers, cricketers who are not coach indirectly lift the bat in a lateral direction because it is not a natural movement to go straight. So I had to do a PhD to tell people that, hey, there's a difference between lifting up the bat between there and there. (laughs) So, and, and we were finding this in all the different age groups, you know, so, that's basically where the research had led. And and to answer your question, we so so we, we looked at those different groupings. We looked at uh, cricketers not just within South Africa, but even abroad. Um, I mean, the YouTube videos that we had analyzed of past uh, international cricketers were all from different countries. And obviously, because a number of them um, I, I unfortunately had passed on, or they, were, they, they came from a very long time ago, it was not possible to analyze them physically. But fortunately, uh, with their videos being available in the public domain and on different archives, we were able to analyze the videos. So, so that's where, where, where the analysis was from. And beyond my PhD, we were able to look at um, cricketers even at the university level, uh, i'm also still you know talk, uh, working on the backlift as well looking at other associational factors if there's any correlations between power hitting and 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 the backlift um if there's any other correlations with anthropometry and physical fitness and the backlift so we've now been able to open up the research questions even broader now that we have this limited understanding initially we had a limited understanding in terms of what the backlift can and cannot do but now we need we started to open up this kind of uh, you know what could I say a flora of questions so that we can see you know how deep does does this whole go even when it comes to this backlift. Um, so in a nutshell, that's what we were able to do in the last uh, six to seven years.
0: You know, growing up, I, I remember watching Herschel Gibbs bat, and the thing that struck me the first time I, I noticed him was the backlift because it was very different from what I would see with every other international player. And I remember thinking, how is he going to succeed with that? Uh, w- would that be like an example? Because I feel like that is a good example of someone who uses a, a more of a lateral backlift. lift. Um, is that very specific to South Africa? Because I've not really seen it in too many other countries.
1: Yeah, so Hershey is a talent. He's an absolute talent. Um, I mean, he played rugby at school and, you know, it was easy for him to, to transition into cricket as well. But, but a guy like that who is so successful, one of the key determinants with him is the open face of the bat. Yeah. Uh, now, now, we got a lot of critique initially from the scientific audience that you can't classify that kind of bat as lateral because it's actually quite in a, quite, quite in a straight kind of a linear plane. And the, the key difference is that some batters would have a kind of a straight back where they're pointing to the first lip or so. But the face of their bat is not closed. It's open. And that is another key finding that we found that there's a huge difference when the bat is actually open or closed in the backlift. Now, some people may close their face if their backlift is wider, but it still allows, allows them, it gives them that rotational momentum to still get behind the ball. But some bettors who have that kind of a straightish backlift, but their face of the bat is open, allows them to get behind the ball for the cut and for the pull. Okay. And that allows him to get behind the ball. So what you'd even notice, I mean, we, we, we can come back into the later questions as well, but it, it's more about where the batter is positioned just at the moment the bowler releases the ball. So just before the bowler is, after he's gathering, he's just about to release the ball. That's the point where we want to see where the backlift is. And even if the ball is just before midway along the crease in midair, there's some batters who even change up a little bit. That's what we've seen. But a vast majority, a vast majority of batters, we, we want to see where their position is just at the moment the bowler has released the ball. And on that basis, we, we tend to find that we understand where they are in terms of positioning of the backlift. But even if, the ball, if they really have a good eye, we find that they even get more lateral. Now, the point is, is that if you want to be attacking in your strokes and if you want to be aggressive or play an aggressive shot, naturally, a batter would not be able to do that with a straight back lift unless they're going over the bowler's head. Right. But if they need to do a lofted drive, if they need to do hit the ball to corner or play the pull, naturally, if they're playing an aggressive shot, it would be a lateral back lift. So even with some of the batters that had a straight back lift that, where they couldn't have changed, even at times when they were playing the shorter version of the game, they displayed elements of the lateral backlift. So those are the two things that are really paramount when we're looking at batters is, where are they at the point of delivery? Are, is their bat open or closed? Their bat face, is it open or closed? Because that's make a, that makes a big difference whether they're playing a defensive shot or an offensive shot. And the other thing that we haven't, um, evaluated yet is the type of bowler that a batter would face. So in mm-hmm. our analysis, a lot of the bowlers that had bowl to batters were either medium or fast-paced bowlers. We didn't look at bowling machines because we wanted it to mimic an actual match kind of simulation. But that's the other question is, what happens with spin bowlers? Because there is less time for a batter to react with spin bowlers. They would have, the a lot of batsmen would have their bat onto the ground. And just as the bowler is about to release the ball, they'll get in their position, whether it's an off spinner or a leg spinner. But with fast bowlers, because the ball is coming at an increased speed, they now need to be at a position to get prepared to execute a a, a shot selection. And there we find that just before the bowler is about to release the ball, that's the key position of where the batter is. So in a nutshell, I mean, there's guys like Gibbs as well as Ponting. Ponting and Michael Clark were great examples of having an open face of the bat. Um, ABD Villiers as well. Uh, we look at all these purists and they are able to administer a variety of good shot selections purely because of their face of the bat being open. Um, another good example was uh, Raul Dravid. I actually had a, a Zoom chat with, with Raul. It was a fascinating conversation. Then he picked up my research and he wanted to have a chat. And um, even uh, Vera Kohli, you know, his face of the bat is also open, and you know, so the the face of the bat is a really crucial factor in underpinning the the type of shot selection that will flow thereafter.
3: I was about to ask you this because does it also make a difference in terms of playing the moving ball versus the straight ball? Yeah, absolutely. Like yeah, so I mean, a lot of based, you mean?
1: Yeah, yeah. A lot of our research looked into the into you know medium or fast paced deliveries. Uh, mm-hmm. but you know if, if there's if there's spinning or even if there's different motions, it, it certainly does have an effect. In terms of excuse me, in terms of conditions where the the the, the wickets are either fast tracked, you know, like in Australia or South Africa, or whether we're going into the subcontinent, we really didn't take the conditions you know per se into account. Um, that that that's something that could that could be looked at, but I do think it's more of an extrinsic factor rather than an intrinsic factor of how a bat actually plays. And I think it's more mm. about looking at the intrinsic factors that affect how a batter is able to position himself biomechanically um, right. while be, being able to position himself in the environment. So, for example, the kind of things that they would do if they're playing on the subcontinent is they're rather bat within their crease. If they're in South Africa and if it's a here, they'll bat outside their crease. But I don't really think it affects the biomechanics of how they move at that split second. But I do think that there's an impact depending on the type of bowler that they would face. You know, If it's a left-arm bowler over the wicket to a right-hander, absolutely. Um, if it's a, a spin bowler, whether it's a leg spinner or an off-spinner, absolutely.
3: Did you also find a difference in batters from different countries with their backlifts? Because some countries coach harder, right? Some countries don't coach that much. So did you find that sort of a variation?
1: That's a beautiful question. Yeah, so, so the West Indies... And and Pakistan, they they don't put a lot of emphasis on on textbooks, and there, that's where we find the natural flair from badgers coming in. But what we find, even in South Africa, as well as the UK, Australia, um, there's a lot of emphasis on technique and how you should look. And rather, and I and I say this in the thesis as well. I said. The objective of cricket is to score runs, not not to look pretty. <laughs> and and I think that that's something that we we, we need to kind of defi- uh, de- decipher as well. Is when do we take as coaches or scientists? When do we take the foot off the pedal when it comes to emphasizing too much on technique, but rather focusing more on elements that enhances performance?
0: I think um, a great India example. Well, sorry, uh, yeah. I think a great example of what you were just talking about that is Stephen Smith. You know, he's not the prettiest looking player, but. He has a technique, a stance, and a bat lift that works for him. Same thing with someone like Fawad Alam from Pakistan. Like his batting stance, it just looks comical almost at times, but he's scoring runs. So, yeah, your point is very valid in that.
1: Yeah, we actually wrote a paper on the comparative analysis of Stephen Smith to Don Bradman, and I think that came about when he was having the second highest test average and even past Graham Pollock. And we had to then look and say, okay, well, if he also now has a lateral backlift. You know, you know, what's so great about what he's doing? And it's absolutely right. And the, the bottom line, guys, is that every player that we see is different. Mm-hmm. Every player is going to have elements in his, in his toolbox that are going to be unique to him in order to play. And at that elite level, you can't really change much. You can only tweak a few things here and there. But if you change too much, And it's not, it's not a very good exercise at the, at the junior levels or at the same professional levels, by all means, but at the highest level. I mean, if I can give elements to coaches and scientists right now to say that at the elite level, just change the face of the bat from close to open, that's something that could be a difference between 32 or 50 or a 70 and 100, right? So those are the kind of tweaks we want to look at at the elite level. But even India as well, they put a lot of emphasis on, on textbooks as well, but not as much as the other, other uh, the NGO sphere nations, but there in India as well, it's about flair. It's about how much runs you can score. And I think that's, that's what it is. It's about the objective of cricket batting is to score runs. Technique definitely helps. And that's why it's paramount. It forms the base of any player that I believe, but we cannot ignore the backlift. We really cannot, uh, because we're now finding that it is a contributing factor to successful batsmanship. And biomechanically, we know that if a batsman's head is not still, they fall away, or something go- goes wrong in the entire kinetic chain. We're now finding that even the backlift after the head, the backlift, can also have an effect on the other components of a better stance, in terms of their shoulder, in terms of their, uh, their opening their stance, in terms of their hip, everything. So it's all about this biomechanical chain um, that we need to look into. So the individuality of a batsman or a player, it's, it's really unique. And that brings me to that point that there's no one size fits all approach in sport. And especially in cricket, we've got to treat every player as an individual. So young kids grow up and they say, ah, I want to bat like, um, like Herschel Gibbs. or I want to bat like Kohli, or I want to bat like this so-and-so and as we get older, we need to understand that every player we see, we can take elements and lessons from each player, but it's each better that we have the pleasure of watching is going to be completely different to anyone else in the field. Right. But the, the trend that we've noticed in our research is that quite simply, is that there's a big difference between a lateral backlift and a straight backlift.
3: It's great that you talked about this biomechanical chain, right? Because... Is there a physical model that explains why the lateral backlift is successful generally? Is it something Absolutely. to do with the center of mass or like something else?
1: Yeah, so it's it's got to do with a number of biomechanical properties starting with the center of mass and, and, and balance is probably the key property over there. But then we also go into, in terms of angular momentum. Now, if you're looking at where the back is being directed, there's some sort of proportion in terms of angular momentum. Um, when we uh, when someone does 3 d biomechanical analysis, you'd be able to look at other parameters in terms of velocity velocity, your acceleration in terms of the the mass of the bat, the weight of the bat et cetera et cetera So all of those kinds of properties do have an impact and a role in terms of how a batter plays, and more importantly, what kind of bat they would be able to 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 use as well.
3: One chart I also saw in one of your papers I think was. Uh, the proportion of lateral backlift pairs increases as the formats go shorter so why is that uh do you get a wider short range if you have a lateral backlift i think you talked about that uh, before as well yeah.
1: yeah yeah it's it's purely because of the offensive nature that that comes with the shorter format of the game that if we need to score runs at a more rapid rate um you know they would need to be a lot more offensive and naturally batters would adopt a lateral backlift in order to score runs more at a rapid rate so we find that that there's an increased incidence of a lateral back lift from tests right up to the T20 stage.
2: So fascinating points, um, I'll be really enjoying this conversation. And I think one of the points that stuck with me was how having, say, the bat face open helps in, you know, the cut shot, the pull shot, um, which sort of leads me to, you know, uh, my curiosity towards how do you coach a young player? And, I, you know, how do you make sure that with whatever backlift they're comfortable with, they're able to execute these variety of shots, play all around the ground. And also, uh, you know, we want to talk about the cricket bat that you invented and why you think that
1: would be a good balance in uh, teaching young players, you know, the wide range of shots. Right, right. So some of recommendations to that question might be controversial to the community, but um, if we want young cricketers to be successful, we shouldn't be coaching what backlift they should have. We should let them play, let them lift the bat in a way that they are that, that, that's comfortable uh, for them. And if we do that, automatically they're going to lift the bat not straight, but more in a lateral direction. That's what's going to happen. So we, sh- we, we should coach kids the fundamentals and the techniques about everything in terms of holding the bat, the grip. The grip also has a role where we should ha- allow the the V to be a lot more open in the bat so that it's not too rigid. So if the grip on the bat is too rigid, it allows them to be very closed and too defensive. So we should allow them to have a, a, adjust their ease on the, on the grip to be a little bit more open so there is flexibility in order to, to hit the ball. But what I'm saying is the one aspect that we shouldn't coach them at the junior level is how to lift the bat or to direct the bat in terms of the backlift. So that's what I think is really important from a coaching perspective. Each player there as well from a, in the junior role will be different. And there are elements that would need to be corrected if there's no success or if they're not able to hit the ball. I think the most simplest things that are, that's being taught to coaches at level one and level two is in terms of see the ball, get into the right position, balance, um, let them decipher between the front foot and the back foot. So I mean, all of those kinds of things are imperative. Uh, but when it comes to the actual backlift, preferably do not coach it. Let it be a natural movement that they develop over time. Um, but if they and you see what we see a lot of the time with kids is that they try to emulate their favorite batsmen on television, so they want to try and bat like Rory Burns, or they want to try and bat like Stephen Smith or Hashimamla, who you know, so I mean they, they shouldn't. They they should just try to be as natural as they are, and you know, so the coaches should talk about natural abilities and being themselves from a very young age because players grow up. I mean, kids grow up, you know, instinctively knowing that they want a bat like this person or not like that person. And only later they realize they are, they are their own individual self. So I think that's what's really important from a coaching perspective. And this is exactly the reason why we developed this coaching bat. So we have put the shape of the tennis racket at the distal end of the bat. And we had a lot of questions around that and part, partly criticisms which we've been able to address in the scientific literature. But it's basically based on the weight distribution of the bat. So if we have the weight distribution of the bat at the distal end it automatically allows the player to lift the bat in a lateral direction or even in a more rotary momentum before hitting the ball. So that coaching bat is more for training aid for young cricketers not just in terms of the backlift but also in terms of improving their performance. And it's it's not meant to be used in matches, according to the ICC law, the MCC laws, it's not allowed. We had a meeting with the MCC committee in two thousand and sixteen at Lords, and unfortunately they 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 refuse it. So, but in training, they can use it as much as possible, but it's not allowed in matches. So that's a training aid for those two exact purposes, so that they can improve performance, and subsequently they would also develop a lateral backlift. And as they get older we would also look into the bat the lateral surface of that bat being narrower and narrower and narrower to the point that it's an actual cricket bat so that they can blend in to using a normal bat in matches at uh, at the age of 13 or 15 etc so uh the, the bat hasn't been uh, commercialized we haven't done that yet because we're trying to find the right material uh, but the hat the, the bat has been protected from an ip perspective and it has been published and the sole purpose of the bat is to exactly improve the performance of young cricketers um, so that they are able to hit the ball and to and to score runs.
2: Uh, I was just going to follow up on the bat just to say, have you seen adoption within South Africa, within
1: academies, and any feedback you've received about the bat? There's a there's a huge demand. Um I'm also I'm also getting guys in America who want, <laughs> want the bat and they want to they want to be the, the reps for America and stuff. And I'm like, I would be we're very pleased to to hear this. But the problem is that we haven't got the final product because we trying to find the right material. We had prototypes that we use in our interventions in our recent studies. The problem is that on the edge of the bat, the the bat started to to, to crack because we made it from plastic. So now we're trying to find the, and and, and they were using a soft ball. They weren't even using a cricket ball Uh, because at the age of six or seven, we can't really expect them to use a cricket ball. Uh, So they were using a softer ball, but it was still cracking. So we can't give a product out to the market until we finalize the right material. And the material has to be right in both its weight and its uh, durability. So once we're able to achieve those kind of properties, then we would be more comfortable for, for taking it out uh, there. But uh, we're not at the stage now of mass commercialization, but there has been a massive demand, thankfully, not just within South Africa, but with all the cricketing nations, and even surprisingly now in, in America as well.
0: It's good to hear. Uh, so if I'm understanding correctly, so it would be essentially be a series of training bats over the course of the training, correct? It's not just one size bat. It is as they progress along, as they get more comfortable. And the idea is they get to a stage where with a regular cricket bat, they can, they can play those. Is that correct?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, the, 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 the six or seven year old would use that size, which is the original size that you guys have seen. But what happens when they are eight or nine they kind of outlive that bat because if they they're a bit bigger for it so they do need a subsequent version of that bat to use so that they can improve so it's not just one bat that's going to help them for the rest of their career they need to have stages of learning and the, the literature talks about motor control and learning and training and if we stop it at if we if they started at six and they stop it at eight what happens after that so there has to be a continued variation in terms of the training aid that they would use right up to the age of 13, 14, where they then can be in a position to then um, adapt to the normal cricket bat for both training and for matches. So what I'll do is I'll send you a picture um, that, that talks about, the, we, uh, I've, I framed it as the long-term batting development model. Now in the sports sciences, there's something called the LTAD model, which is long-term athletic development. And with this coaching cricket bat specifically, we've termed it as LTBD, long-term batting development. So that after every stage of learning or development as an athlete, the coaching cricket bat changes within those relevant stages. But I'll send you that picture so that the viewers can also see um, what, that subs- what that sequence looks like in development.
0: Also, uh, can you talk a little bit about the, the contribution of uh, Russell Woolmer and uh, Professor Tim Notes?
1: Yep, so, so, so respect, uh, respectfully great friends. And um, so, so Prof. Tim Noakes was my PhD supervisor when we did the research project on, on the bat. And till today, he's still my mentor and, and, and re- with respect, a great friend of mine. And Russell Homer is the son of the late Bob Homer, And um, uh, Russell Homer is a talented graphic designer. And if you guys must know, he designed the cover of the Art and Science of Cricket book. So that Art and wow. Science of Cricket book, he designed wow. it, so he's a graphic designer, and in terms of the coaching bat, he designed the picture as well of the bat, and wow. the measurements, <laughs> and so that we were able then to go in, you know to make it. So it's a collaborative effort with with Russell and, and Prof Tim, and uh, they they were they they've been collaborative with with this project right from the start, and um, yeah, so so that's that that's the role that they play, and it's an absolute pleasure to work with them both, and we we hope that we are able to take the the coaching bat. Um, to, to 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 as many uh, children as possible, provided that we find the right
3: material. Yeah, So I don't know if you've been following this, but Kohli has been having some trouble outside the stump So there's a theory going around that because his stance is open, his bat is coming down angled across the line of the ball. And that's why he's edging it. So they've done a comparison of Kohli and Root and Smith, and they've drawn the lines of the backswing. So, Kohli's backlift comes down like this angle, whereas Root and Smith yeah. go down straight. And the theory is that that, that is um, better to play the moving ball. So, do you have any thoughts on that? Because uh, there's a theory going around about the backlift angle and the way the bat comes down.
1: Right. So, immediately I can tell the coach or the video analysts where the problem is without even having to look at video analysis software. So, if we look mm-hmm. at Kohli and Root on this picture, the mere right. fact that their backlift is coming from 11 o'clock to 6 o'clock in, in Cody's mm-hmm. case. And with Root's case, it's also coming like an 11 o'clock to about a 7 o'clock. Well, that's an mm-hmm. issue. So that's the issue. Right. What Steve Smith is doing correctly is he's got more for rotation in that backlift. where It's coming more right. from like a 10 o'clock and then down to a, a 6 o'clock. Right. The right. problem right. with Steve Smith is that his feet are nowhere absolutely nowhere right. in that in this particular right. photo so right. if he had the footwork of root and if root mm. had the rotation that steve smith had they would have they, they would make a, um, a fantastic yeah when we look at coley his head is outside of the line so if you have to draw right. a line from the elbow going straight down to his toe right. his head falls outside of that line which right. means that yes. there is no there is no parallel from the head to the toe, and that goes right. the same for Steve Smith as well. His head is completely out of the line, and that's because there is no use of the feet. But when we look at Joe Root, partly his head is in line with the toe. He's mm-hmm. slightly out of that line, but right. the problem is that there is no rotation in his backlift for the off-foot delivery. So mm. there's there's an issue with each of these deliveries and with each of these images, and right by individually correcting each of these players for this particular delivery, they would be able to overcome their shortcoming on the offside, and particularly Viracoli. We've got to look at two things for Viracoli. We've got to look at Mm -hmm. where the rotation of the bat is coming from. It's coming from 11 o'clock. It has to come from about nine or 10 o'clock, rotated, and then he'll be in a position to hit the oncoming moving ball. And the other Mm -hmm. thing is that his head and his feet are not in line. It has to come back, or his foot has to come back so that there's a straight line. So if he's able to adjust those two factors mm-hmm. and even if mm-hmm. he's facing deliveries at 150 160 kilometers an hour he shouldn't have an issue irrespective of what conditions he's playing on
0: i'm i'm, I'm very curious and I, I don't know if you can speak to this but you know you know we're talking about you know changing the mindset or changing you know this idea of the back lift, especially at the you know the junior group like with young kids but with professional cricketers, like if you could walk up to someone like Stephen Smith or Virat Kohli, who have accomplished so much, and then you say, "Hey, I have this is my belief, this is my idea that this would work," how do you think professional cricketers at the stage that they are right now, um, how receptive would they be? I don't know if you have ever interacted at that level with professional cricketers about you know the backlift. But from your experience, uh, how, what is their as to that, to changes like that?
1: So I'm currently helping two international cricketers at the moment in terms of their backlift. Confidentially, I can't say who they are. Um, but so, so the reception from some cricketers have been good. They've been very open to learn more and hear about it. A vast majority don't want to change much, um, especially mm-hmm. for, the, for, for such cricketers who have been in their careers for more than eight, more than 10 years. They know what works for them. They know what their weaknesses are um in their game and they want to stick with it and if it's working why change it and i think that's a question that a lot of people ask at the international level don't don't fix something that's already working but there are some handful cricketers who are at the early stages of their career where they would be open to some sort of adjustments you know so whether it's the open or closed face of the bat whether it's about deconstructing that very brief analysis that we did now between those three batters they're open to hearing those kinds of things to see how they would be able to adjust i think more broadly um even in the scientific community, people do understand the importance of the backlift and the biomechanics thereof. But our understanding as scientists is that it's not just about one component of a batting technique. So it's not just about the backlift. It's not only about the stance. It's not only about the grip. It's not only about the balance of the head. It's everything. And when we talk about the biomechanics chain, it relates to all the components of the batting technique. So a common answer that you may find is that, yeah, the back of is imperative, but don't forget this, don't forget that. We've got to focus on this, we've got to focus on that. And it also comes down to, you know, all cricketers are individuals. We really need to see, you know, what the unique issues are. I mean, like right now, when humanish you know, shared that image, we were able to understand specifically where the improvement factors would be for Cody, Root, and for Smith. So, I think the more experienced the player is within the cricket fraternity, they're less likely to be open about how certain adjustments could be, you know, provided. The more earlier they are into their international careers or even in the middle of their careers, the more open they would be to understanding or learning more about how they could improve. So I think from my experience, that has been the kind of reception uh, from, from a, from a backlift perspective. But when I do work with players, it's not only about the backlift. We look at the entire yeah. biomechanics chain. So as much, as much as I have specialized in the backlift specifically, there is always an underpinning or foundational grounding in terms of the biomechanics of the player, and not just with the batters, but with bowlers as well. Where bowlers going wrong in their delivery stride? What's going on at the impact of gather or the front foot strike before bowl, or for, before release or uh, ball release? So any movement within sport is underpinned by biomechanics of motion. And we are because we've looked at so many players of analysis, sometimes, I mean, it's not, uh, I mean, a video analysis provides you with the reliability and the validity of something that you're seeing objectively. But because we have been able to watch so many players and, you know, over the years, you know, we are able to just look at a picture and say, okay, well, that's the problem. And I don't really need my video analysis software to show where the issue is. So, I think if cricketers do have a more um, specific understanding in terms of what sports science offers, any sport, and even in particularly cricket, I think they would be more open to know the benefits that it would be able to offer them. And there are many cricket teams that only have a coaching staff and a video analyst, but there's not many staff that have a biomechanic specialist working for them. And I think if they begin to understand the impact that a biomechanics specialist can have within their team, they would be more open to see what kind of advantages a biomechanics specialist would be able to offer. So it's not video analysis. It's different to biomechanics because a lot of the video analysts are fantastic at what they do and they either have backgrounds in engineering, some do have in sports science or even IT or computers or even within the tech industry. But to apply a sports biomechanical scenario to an athlete or to even cricketers, that takes years of training and analysis, irrespective of what sporting code it is. So to answer your question, I think the reception from cricketers in general would increase along the years if they begin to understand the benefits and the value that these biomechanists do offer within the cricketing circles.
2: So um, I think a couple of weeks back, uh, you kind of mentioned the most important point uh, of the is you is know, just before the bowlers delivery stride. And um, a couple of weeks back, I started looking at videos and I noticed that today's batsmen have their bat up rather than grounded or near the ground, uh, which was the trend say 20 years ago. And I you know, did a bit of research and it looked like, at least in Australia, Mike Hussey was one of the first people who did that. And his thought was that helps his balance, helps his head not falling over. Um, What have you found about uh, this? uh, And where do you stand on, you know, bat up versus down?
1: To be quite honest with you, Mike, I think it's more for psychological advancement compared to a biomechanical advancement. Because from a mindset perspective, you want to be in a position to be ready to receive the oncoming ball from from the bowler. So, you know, whether your bat is down at half of his run up or whether you're here, it's all about how you want to concentrate at that oncoming delivery that you're going to be facing. That's why the most important aspect is for you to, while he is in the run-up or even in the gather, is for you, for a better to actually prepare what position they're going to be in prior to the oncoming ball so that they can decipher what kind of shot selection to administer. So I think it's more important at gather compared to when the bowler is at run-up to know what position they're in. So there's no really preference in terms of whether the bat is up or down during the run-up, because that is more for psychological adjustment for the bat in terms of how they want to concentrate before making impact with the ball. The more important thing, though, is where is the batter at the bowlers' gather and just before bowl release. For me, that's the most that's the crucial position that batters need to understand where they are before they make impact with the ball. But as the bowler is running up, Whether they want to have the bat down or up, it is completely up to them. Um, With regards to a spin bowler, it may be a different uh, scenario because the amount of time the bowler would come up to the crease to bowl is a lot less compared to a fast bowler running up. So I think for me, it's more of a psychological adjustment for the batter uh, and, and not just a biomechanical adjustment. It's more for psychological adjustment as to whether they want their bat to be up or down.
2: Yeah, that's, that's fascinating because I, I was looking at the top 20 test batsmen today and pretty much everyone except for Chiteshwar Pajara has his bat up. And it's it's interesting how, you know, this big change has happened over a couple of decades. And it, it sounds like it's just more of a field thing, more of a psychological thing rather than, you know, being backed by some sort of natural, uh, you know, natural movement, um, so to say. Uh, but yeah. I think it's it sort of, Leads me to my next question and, you know, sports is in general, not just cricket, uh, have had athletes who just stand out in terms of biomechanics and uh, the probably the favorite example is Michael Phelps, the uh, Olympic swimmer from US who um, I, I forget what exactly it was, but he had a just really wide, uh, really wide wingspan, which allowed him to swim better. Um, and then I know what i there and had an arm, which bent a little more than normal. Um, have you seen, uh, in your research, any such other examples? Uh, and what, what are your thoughts about international teams also spending time on this? Um, have they really explored, you know, the science of biomechanics or is it still
1: very nascent? I think to, to answer your second question, international bi- um, biomechanics research has really done quite well and it's really advanced over the last few years. I mean, we've got a number of uh, biomechanics journals within sport, so and, and uh, there's, been, there's been considerable work done on the impact of biomechanics on different sports and not just within cricket. So I think it has been widely accepted within the biomechanics community and the scientific community about the impacts that biomechanics and applied biomechanics can have uh, within within sport, within cricket. We've got biomedical uh, engineers working within the field of sport because of their biomechanics expertise. So biomechanics relearning is not just from a sporting perspective, but even from an engineering perspective or from a remodeling perspective of how things are modeled in order to understand patterns or different types of analysis with human motion. So it's, it's, done, it's done quite well over the last few years. And um, I think for the next decade, we are going to be in a scenario where the trends in the trajectory of technology coupled with biomechanics are going to be at its peak, where we'll be able to understand more particular things more uh, efficiently in a shorter space of time, and it's not just going to be about efficiency, but it's also about it's going to be about saving time for the coaching staff to optimize their performance um, scenarios for their teams, when whether they're traveling or whether they're playing at home. Um, I have come across other types of interesting athletes uh, where they have used as if I can say more unconventional methods in terms of their performance. I mean, if we stick to cricket, Lasith Malinga, you know, he's got more of a slinger kind of motion, as you know, and that relates to another javelin thrower that instead of him throwing the javelin overhead, there was javelin throwers throwing the javelin more at an angular level to get more torque at release so that the javelin could go even further. So there's a scenario that if you have more for slinger kind of momentum as you do have in cricket in in terms of fast bowling, it may not give you in terms of directional accuracy but it does give you the speed and the torque that you do need to deliver um, a specific object whether it's a cricket ball, a javelin or, or anything else for that matter. So that was an interesting thing from a biomechanics perspective is that there's so much of emphasis on overhead activities but how do you explain certain people who are projecting this different types of objects uh, from a sideways or from, a, from an angular perspective? So for me, that was quite interesting. Um, you know, so there's, there's so many athletes that we're now seeing who have different types of techniques or different types of approaches to, to different things. And we all understand it's because they're unique as an individual. They have a unique talent and a unique potential and natural ability that cannot really be compared to others, and that we need to understand. I mean, for example, uh, Shivnarin Chandapur, um, he's got a straight backlift, but it's pointing to the square leg umpire. <laughs> you know, so in, from from this linear plane where we're looking at the video, it may look like a straight backlift to people watching from there, but from this angle, it's a lateral backlift. <laughs> so you know, we've you, you, got batters like that. We've got different types of athletes doing different things. And it all boils down to what, to what works for them. And if it's going to work for the guys like Steve Smith and Rory Burns and Hashim Amna, Shiv in Chandapal and, and for Lassie Malinga or Murray Dithrin and all of these players, then that's great. And if they are able to be successful and maintain their successes at the international level, then, then let's keep it there. We shouldn't try and change something that does not look textbook correct or that does not look traditionally or conventionally correct. Um, we know at a time now, we're going to see that a lot of the coaching methods or guidelines are going to be debunked because we are trying to find methods that may be, uh, that, that, that may be very good for certain players and may not be good for certain players. So it comes b- down to the point of that there's no one size fits all approach. We've got to treat every player as an individual and embrace their unique abilities for what they are able to offer and to optimize their performance where we can as scientists or as coaching staff or as um, video analysts. And I think that's what's really important.
2: Absolutely, I mean, I think that's where coaching becomes such a complex, uh, you know, activity, especially with young cricketers, because you have to understand where to curb them, their natural instinct versus let them go. Because I I remember growing up when I was, you know, playing cricket, my coach used to drill into me that my grip has to be, the we has to be perfectly lined up with the middle of the bat. That was just never natural to me. And you know, I, I, feel I, I don't know how it contributed, but I'm sure it like, you know, did not help me with certain shots. So uh, it's a very interesting point where I think more and more coaches need to be taught about these things. And I feel like, especially in countries where there's a little bit of lack of structure uh, in, in terms of coaching, I think that'll be a very interesting challenge.
1: Absolutely. Now, I mean, we, we were taught you know, as a youngster that when you're lifting up your bat, pretend that you hold, you're holding a baby, you, you're rocking a baby in your arms. And that gives you that kind of rocking motion to have a straight back when you're lifting it and you're coming down straight. I mean, how do you hit a ball for six to cow corner by doing this motion? It's very difficult, you know? So, <laughs> so, so I, think, I think you're quite right that, that the structures and the, the way we think more laterally as well um, is, is really more, more important right now in terms of how we adjust to different types of conditions to different types of performances. Because I mean, batting is going to, uh, um, to be, it's going to be enhanced and it's going to be revolutionized in years to come. And that's also because bowlers are evolving as well. It's not just batters. Because bowlers are, evol- are evolving and the, 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 the masterminds behind cricket are evolving. The fielders are evolving. Everything, everyone is evolving. That bat, uh, batsmanship in itself is going to evolve and it's not going to be what we always know in ten years time there may be different things that we that we will learn so absolutely we need to adapt to the times and we need to keep evolving with what's currently happening in both the scientific literature and the coaching literature as well
0: habib uh, th- this has been a fascinating conversation and i'm really curious about you know future trends uh, going forward but i'm also uh, interested to know if you ever thought uh, about this from a bowler's perspective, because you know, obviously, we've been talking about the backlift for the batters. Is, is there anything, you know, from the side of the bowlers that you think could be the next big change for them?
1: So, I mean, the one concern from an injury prevention perspective for bowlers is lower back pain. Um, uh, we we've always been concerned for a long time on the longevity of bowlers' careers because of the impact that it puts on their spine, on their lower back, and on their feet. And we're starting to see quite a number of bowlers, especially in the semi-professional level that may uh, do more for counter rotation, uh, where it's not a really a front on action, but more of a semi or mixed action. But they're going to have quite a bit of counter rotation in the hips to generate the speed of the ball. And I'm talking about fast bowlers now as well. Um, we are hopeful that, that that kind of trajectory in fast bowling is not going to have an, a shortened kind of impact on their careers where it's shortened. And we're hoping that there would be longevity, but the problem is that there's so much of uh, talk and and, and force that not only occurs at the spine, but also at at front foot or impact uh, uh, at front foot landing. So apparently there's thousands of newtons of force that is generated on a bowler's front leg at the moment of landing just before they release the ball. That puts an enormous amount of force on the body and in terms of how they are able to keep fit and strong. So for me, it's more about how are we able to keep bowlers more injury-free and not just about optimizing their performance. How are we able to balance injury prevention and, and performance optimization? A guy like Jimmy Anderson, to still play cricket and bowl at that speed, I'm, it's just amazing. It's fantastic. You know I mean? Uh, the, the, but the problem is that there's a minority of Jimmy Andersons and Dale Staines who are going to be able to bowl. At such a speed for such a long time. I mean, guys like Alan Donald, his career was cut short, and there were many others, uh, others, careers who were cut short. You know, so for me, that's the issue with with fast bowlers is the longevity within the game. And um, we may find more counter rotation uh, in terms of of delivering the speed. Uh, we're going to find some very different actions, uh, uh, you know, in the, in the near future in terms of delivering the speed. Um, that people will think, like, you know, how did he deliver that ball? But at the end of the day, he delivered the ball. So I don't think we should be surprised if we are going to find unique actions um, where they are able to deliver the ball both in speed or in terms of accuracy. Um, but my concern always with bowlers is about injury because between bowlers and, and batters, they are a lot more at risk in terms of injuries compared to batters. Uh, so that's my only concern.
0: Are there any other future trends uh, that you see down the road?
1: Absolutely. I think uh, we live in a tech industry right now. So the fourth industrial revolution has propagated so many evolvements within sport. Uh, I mean, one example is we're looking at augmented reality within cricket and how imaging can can, can see, uh, can actually predict the type of movements that players would make. Uh, We have just submitted an an article now that talks about image recognition of backlifts of players using an an automated image recognition of of backlifts that may change the way uh, coaches or scientists actually analyze certain footage of players. So we're going to be working in a space where there's a lot of automation, there's going to be a lot of disruption in terms of how we analyze uh, cricketers or sportsmen or in terms of the the different types of adoptions they would go about. There's also gonna be considerable change from a motion capture perspective, in terms of there's gonna be more elements behind vision analysis softwares that we will be able to see. We will be able to see a lot more different types of um, interfaces that we wouldn't have seen today. We're probably gonna see that in future. So I think there's there's gonna be a lot more options for us to see and to analyze players so that it is not just more efficient, but it's also going to save time and we would be able to analyze players a lot more quicker than what we're currently doing. So there's there's already a lot of um, uh, a lot of trajectory and trends in terms of uh, sport in a nutshell. But I think with cricket, there's going to be mass adoption in the near future, purely because of the industrial revolution that we're living in and as well as within the technology spheres that we currently embedded with. There are engineers and IT specialists and data scientists that are working tirelessly to develop solutions and programs and different types of products that are going to be beneficial to sport, not just for analysis, but also in terms of performance optimization or injury predictions or even injury managements. So, you know, I wouldn't be surprised that if certain staff members of of the team staff might be replaced by an app. And I say that with the greatest respect because that's that's the kind of world we're living in now that a lot of people are a little bit concerned in terms of where they are positioned because what they do could be replaced by, by some sort of automation. Right. Um, you know, so I think that's where we headed uh within the sports arena, and that there's gonna be mass adoption from a tech perspective and innovation.
0: I think overall that just you know, predicts exciting times for cricket. Um, And it all depends on the attitude of players, administrators, coaches. So it'll be fascinating to see where that uh, goes. Um, You know, Habib, again, thank you so much for your time. And I really want to wrap this up by asking one final question, which is, I came across an interview that you did a few years ago, where you mentioned that uh, one of uh, one area of research interest for you was to focus on why and how the Proteas can be successful. at The next ICC tournament, which was the 2019 World Cup, so to put it mildly, <laughs> they didn't do very well. Are you focusing on 2023 now?
1: So, so that was a uh, uh, way before the 2019 World Cup had taken place, <laughs> and you know, and uh, what, what I'm trying to what I'm trying to uh, do, to suggest is that the Proteus label of chokers is inaccurate. It's hmm. it's not about a psychological approach of choking at the last minute. It's about culture. And I think we're now seeing that now being an issue only now, but I had already spoken about this cultural influence that was needed many years ago. Because when I worked with international teams, we find that the, that, that the, the cohesion from a social perspective in their culture was fantastic off the field. And I had a concern with you know having being from South Africa and born here that from a cultural perspective, that was somewhat lacking off the field within the Pro team. So if you need someone to be at your back at the most crucial moments of your life, and if culturally off the field, you're not like this, or if we haven't spoken about the cohesion, you're going to, you, you're going to, be, uh, you're going to surmount to pressure in those critical moments, whether it's about one run off the last ball, whether it's trying to defend your, your total when you're going into the opposition. So it's not choking, it's deeper than choking. And we can't just label the proteas as as choking. We've got to go a lot more deeper because cricketers spend 85 to 90% of their time off the field when they're not at World Cups or when they're not at ICC tournaments. So it's about establishing a granular understanding from a social, cohesion, cultural perspective in terms of what's going on and how those kind of situations can be remedied so that when they're on the field, they are able to perform like the teams of Australia who would dominate cricket for at least a decade in the 90s and in the early 2000s. They're able to dominate cricket like the Indian team at the moment. They are able to dominate cricket in T20s like West Indies. Why? Because culturally and from a cohesive perspective, it's optimized. And that's the kind of things that need to be focused um, of, you know, from a team dynamics perspective. So that's the kind of um, you know, finding and, and then the research that I wanted to put forward. Um, it, it didn't get published, um, and then that's because the backflip work kind of t- took precedence at the time. Um, and who knows, with the current COVID-19 pandemic, if we'll have a World Cup in India in 2023, I hope we do. Um, <laughs> but, it, but it's something that I'm still interested in looking towards. It. And, you know, now there's media attention around culture within the Proteus team. But, I mean, this was set back way back then, you know, you know right. so to only really cast an eye on it now, I'm hoping it's not too late because in less than two years, it's the, it's the Cricket World Cup again. Mm-hmm. Um, so if, if, if teams and not just the protests, but if any team are able to optimize their culture, their, their, their team cohesion and the team dynamics and really understand everyone's role and be really strong off the field, then whatever pressure situation you are encountering on the field, you'll be able to tackle it. And I think that's what makes Australian sport so powerful. Is because of those exact reasons, and we can learn from them with regards to that. So it's not mm-hmm. just within cricket, but within rugby, uh, within hockey, swimming, etc. All of these kinds of sports, you know, we uh, th- those are the kinds of things that we need to pay attention to off the field.
0: Well said. You know, I've I've been a South African cricket fan. Well, not a South African cricket fan, but a cricket, uh, a fan of South African cricket for many many years. And some of my best cricket memories are, you know. You know, watching South Africa play in the early 2000s. And um, I genuinely believe a strong South African team is would be great for international cricket, and I really hope that happens. And it'd be great if, uh, you know their track record in these ICC tournaments changes. Um, so th- that'll be interesting to watch. Uh, but Habib, thank you so much for your time today. This was really insightful and uh, educational as well. And I really hope a lot of those Things that we talked about are more accepted and, you know, more academies and coaches and players, you know, uh, they are more receptive to that. And I'm, I'm, I'm really curious to see, uh, you know, in the coming years, you know, how you know people come on board. So please do keep us posted. And I hope you will come back on our podcast to talk about that.
1: No thank you guys for having me. I'm absolutely humbled that we were able to do this conversation today. So thank you so much. It was a great conversation. I love chatting about this. Uh, so <laughs> at any time you're more than welcome to have me again. And uh, look I, I really hope that people find uh, found this useful and um if 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 they if anyone has questions they they can follow me on Twitter or they can email me as well at habib, uh, dot at gmail.com. I'm happy to help or to to offer anything. Um, but thank you guys once again for, um, for having me on your podcast and I wish your podcast all the best and I hope it grows from strength to strength. And, um, I know there's a lot of cricket podcasts out there, but I think if, uh, if you guys keep on doing what you're doing, I know for a fact that it's it's going to do well. So thank you so much for your guys' time. And I know it's not going to be the last.
0: <laughs> Sounds good. Thank, thank you so much, Javi. Thank you for your time. Pleasure. Well, that's it for this episode of The Last Wicket. Thanks again to Habib for joining us. And do check out our show notes for links to all the things we talked about, including his research paper. Meanwhile, if you enjoyed this conversation, do rate and subscribe to this podcast to be notified of new episodes. Follow us on your social media feeds. And do leave us a voice message if you would like to share your thoughts with us. If you can, please do us a favor and answer the survey about our podcast that is linked in the show notes. Thank you for listening, and from all of us here at the Last Ricket, stay safe and stay healthy.